All right, just a few announcements before we get into session five of ten sessions in marriage matters. But uh, one uh, announcement is that this Saturday at 10 a.m. at our house is our next newcomer's brunch. And we need to know today, before you leave today, if you're going to come to the brunch. We would love to have you do that. We just need to know how many are coming so we know how much brunch to make. Uh, 10 a.m. at our place in Flat Rock, so it's only it's uh, eight minutes from here. And uh, if you go to the information desk before you leave, let them know that you want to come. They'll put you on the list. They'll also give you an invitation that has our address, phone number, and the date and time on it. But it's this Saturday, 10 a.m., and it really is just brunch and fellowship together, us getting to know you, you getting to know us, no program. I don't go through anything. Uh, we just would love to have you come over. But we got to know today, so stop by the information desk today if you're planning on doing that. Also, for those who are new to our church, January 3rd, is our next newcomer's orientation. That is during this hour for four Sundays, so January 3rd, 10, 17, and 24, those first four Sundays of January. During this hour, I will meet with those who are new to the church in a separate uh, room right behind here, actually, and we'll go through a booklet of material during those four weeks about who we are and what we believe and where we came from and all of that. So if you are looking for a church or you'd like to know more about our church to determine whether or not this is the place for you, that's why we provide the newcomer's orientation. I really urge you to take those four weeks. It is for information only. We don't hassle you after you have taken that uh, at all. I don't contact you to say, okay, what do you think? Now you should join our church, any of that. You get the information, and then you pray about that. And if you have follow-up questions, we'll be happy to answer them. And then you make a decision uh, based upon that information that was given. And one other announcement is about the Ladies' Christmas Fellowship, which is on Friday night, December the 11th. And the ladies are going to have uh, food for that, and they need, ladies, some of you to help with that food. There is a clipboard with two sheets on it that have the categories of food that the ladies want to have, soups and so on. And that clipboard is located where? There. All right. So it's here, and it's going to start here, and there is, uh, there's, I, I, I told the individual in charge of the, the clipboard that we need four, okay? There's got to be, there's four sections, so we need four. But for this, today, we don't have four, we've got one. Now, when we have four, the chances of all four actually going through all the people in their section are zero, okay? The chances of one clipboard making it through everybody in here that needs to see it and getting back to the individual who is in charge of it are less than zero if that's if that's possible. Nevertheless, ladies, if this crosses your path and you want to help with the food, then indicate your name on there. And if, if it gets through everybody by the time we're done, then I will eat crow on that. I'll be happy to do so. But it's going to start here. And since Andrew has it, and Andrew's not going to the ladies' social, correct, uh, Andrew? Then you can, uh, you know, you guys will pass it back, and when it gets to the, the back of this first row, then it can go across to Chris over in the second section. And then it'll come to the front, and it'll make its way to Troy. And then Troy will give it to uh, Julie. And then Julie will sign up for like 15 things to bring to the ladies' uh, Christmas social. And then she will pass it back to Eula. And it'll go back there, and then it'll go across. Is that Hope back there? Uh, it'll go back to the back, and um, and then and then go across all the way to the front. It'll wind up up here, right? This is where it should wind up. 
up front here. It should wind up in the row where Lorraine and Andrea and uh, Beth and Mariah are, okay? And it should wind up there. If it all works, it should all be filled in, and it'll wind up there. If it does, the day of miracles has continued, and uh, I changed my theology completely, okay? (laughs) All right, so if you guys will start passing that, thank you very much. And I also need to say about that event that ladies, uh, are all the tables filled? Are all the, do we have hosts for all the tables? We need six more hosts of tables, ladies. So if you're interested in hosting one of the tables, and you can find out what all that entails at the information desk, but I know it entails decorating a table. And you're in charge of getting some people together to decorate a table. So we need some more people to do that, but we also just need to know how many ladies are coming. So if you're coming, let the folks at the information desk know, even if you're not hosting a table. And if you're planning on inviting five friends, let them know that you're planning on having yourself and five others, okay? All right, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, I said to you on this uh, series, Marriage Matters, uh, four weeks ago when we began, this is our fifth session, but I said that when I engage in premarital counseling with a couple, I often start this way. I often say, we can solve whatever uh, issues you have. I'm sorry, I used the wrong phrase. When I engage in marital counseling, not premarital, marital counseling, We can solve whatever issues you have if we have three things. If we have a cooperative husband, a cooperative wife, and an agreed standard. If you were here then, you may remember that. And I also told you that uh, in that opening session, everybody's, yep, all fired up. Yes, we can do this. Uh, I'm a cooperative husband. Yes, I'm a cooperative wife. And yes, we agree that the standard of God's word is that against which uh, our actions and words will will be judged. Well, that agreed standard is indeed God's word, and it's God's word because, to state the obvious, it came from from God, but because in the Bible, having come from God, God reveals himself. God makes himself known. So God reveals, uh, makes himself known as to what he is like and what he expects in his word, and that is coupled with the purpose that God tells us in his word for which he has made us, namely, to reflect him back to him. We were made in his image, and we're to reflect his image, what he is like, back to him. He gives us his word, which reveals, makes known what he's like. So I am to be regularly in the process, you are to be regularly in the process then, of conforming ourselves to the character of God, which is given to us in his word. Now, the one human being that has perfectly conformed to the image of God is God the Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And that is why the Bible says in Romans 8, 29, that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. So all of that is about reflecting God back to God. If I become, the more I become like Jesus, the more I'm becoming like God. The more I conform myself to What God says about himself in his word, the more I'm becoming like God. So when I meet with that couple and I say we need to have an agreed standard, I could say our standard, our goal is that each of you become like become like God. And the means by which that will happen is as you become more and more conformed to what God says about himself in his word. Now, why do I give you all that? Here's why. Because now here we are five 
sessions into it. And last week we began and we continue today a look at marital communication. Communication. What does communication have to do with the purpose of being conformed to the image of God? And I just want you to think about that for a minute. If that's really the purpose for which I was made and for which we are married, if you're in a marriage relationship, then that marriage, like your life, is designed for you to help each other become more like Christ. So that being the case, what does communication have to do with that? Well, here's what it has to do with it. God reveals himself, makes himself known as truthful. God is truth. So when I use the communication faculty that God has given me as one made in his image, I'm to use it in ways that reflect his character of truthfulness and other things, love and so on. So communication is not in marriage, in Christian marriage, is not just a pragmatic thing to help stuff go better. It is that if you do it the way the Bible says, it will go better. But that's not its chief purpose. The chief purpose is I communicate in a way that reflects the way God communicates. I'm made in the image of God. I want to help my spouse reflect God's image. And so I use my ability to communicate in a way that's consistent with with God's character. Now, that is then what we're looking at last week and what we're going to continue to look at to look at today. But I left off last week, before we get to page 30, which is the notes that you have in front of you, I left off without finishing pages 26 and 27 from last week. And I told you that I would do that. Now, the bad news is most of you probably don't have pages 26 and 27 in front of you since we're handing out the lessons separately each week. So I'm sorry about that. But if you will just listen as I try to, as I try to tie that together, and then we'll move on to the notes that you that you have in front of you. But we saw last week that in our communication, that emotion is important for us to communicate, both in our words and in our nonverbal communication. The emotions are important to communicate, but of course we want to communicate those emotions in a way that reflects God accurately. And two emotions in particular on pages 26 and 27 of last week's handout Two in particular cause difficulty for most people and married couples, and those are anger and fear. And I want to just briefly deal with each of those and offer you some suggestions about how you deal with the emotions of anger and fear in your communication to to one another. Anger, page 26 says, and you can verify this when you look at your notes that you probably have at home, lining your birdcage at, uh, at home. But if you need a new copy, we have some uh, over here. But we say on page 26, anger has a powerful psychological and physical appeal. Psychologically, anger typically orients us to the faults of others. It tells us that someone has treated us unfairly, injured us, or threatened something that's important to us. Anger invites us to expose our spouses while directing attention away from our own faults. Anger has a powerful physical appeal also. You feel anger in your body. Anger infuses you with energy and prepares you for launching a counterattack. 
Anger does not have to be, though, the enemy of honesty. In fact, God's love drives his anger. Much human anger can be destructive and dangerous, but anger can accomplish good. For example, a mother dashes into the street to pull her child out of the way of a car and then angrily scolds the little one. Her anger is motivated by genuine concern for her child. Similarly, God's anger is motivated by his love for his children. In loving anger, he addresses our sin, warning, beseeching, and discipling by bringing consequences to instruct us. Ultimately, he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins. The cross of Christ is both an act of anger, an act of love and an act of anger. In love, God defeats the enemy's sin and creates a way for us to be restored to relationship with him. But in anger, he pours out his wrath upon God the Son on our behalf. As you worship God, your anger will become more like his. You can use the energy of your anger to examine yourself, not just your spouse. If your anger is to be like God's anger, you must be angry at sin wherever you find it, especially in yourself. And once you've identified your own sin, turn from it and receive God's forgiveness, you can humbly and lovingly address the wrongs of others. So anger is a particular problem in our relationships Uh, All of those things that I just read for you and you can read on your own when you have your handout are true. But let me just boil those down a couple of a couple of ways. Let me offer you two ways to put that into practice in your communication in your marriage or with anybody else for that matter. The first is this is to is to love at all times. Love the sinner. At all times, love the sinner. So you're angry at something your spouse did or failed to do. And maybe that thing that they did or failed to do is something genuinely sinful. But as you are angered at that, be sure to be sure to love the sinner the entire time. That is, loving the sinner means what? Now, do you remember how we defined love a few weeks ago? Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. So as now I'm angry at you for something you did or failed to do, I need to remember that my call at all times is to love you in this. That is to want the best for you in this. Now the truth is our sinful anger, our anger becomes sinful because most often the object of what I'm trying to accomplish is not your benefit, it's whose. It's mine. The reason we got to get this thing fixed is because this thing you fail to do or this stuff you do is so annoying. And it's annoying to me. And I'm sick of it. And so I'm yelling. Because I'm sick of it. And I express my anger however your choice, chosen way of expressing your anger is. Raising your voice. Stopping, you're getting walking out of the room, cold shoulder for several days, whatever that is. It may be a legitimate thing that they did or failed to do that you're angry about, but always remember that you are called to love the sinner. And in loving the sinner, remember you're one of them. Remember you're a sinner. So we have a song, O Church Arise, and it has a line in it that says, Our call to war 
is to love the captive soul, but to rage against who? Do you remember? Rage against the captor. So love the captive soul, love the person who is struggling with this particular thing that they perhaps regularly do or fail to do. Desire what is best for them. What is best for them is for them to become like Christ. And then ask the Lord to help you channel now this anger into energy to help them do that very thing. But our call to war is to love the captive soul, the spouse that is that is gripped by this particular approach to communication, a relationship, love the captive soul, but rage against the captor. I mean, it's good to be angry at sin. It's good and right. God is. But what we say in the notes is be angry at all sin, not just other people's, yours too. And allow that to motivate you to examine yourself. So first, love the sinner. And then second... Use this anger as a motivation, as a motivation to love God and your spouse. So love the sinner and try to separate out what they do from who they are. That's what I'm saying first. And then secondly, use this incident that causes anger to arise within you as motivation to love, to love God and to love your spouse. Now to love God. You know, my spouse does something to me or fails to do something for me that they should. I'm angry about it. How can I use that as an occasion to love God? Here's, here's how. Because as I examine myself, I love God enough to kill my own sin. To use this as an occasion to not just focus on what they did or failed to do, but to focus on myself and my own sin. And it's an expression of love for God that I want to kill, mortify sin within myself. And then use it as an occasion to motivate you to love your spouse by helping your spouse, helping the other person with the particular sin with which they struggle. So love the sinner and then use the anger as motivation to both love God and love the and love your spouse. So that's anger. Another one that... Emotion that is particularly difficult for us is fear. And on page 27, we say this about fear. Focusing on what might happen next, fear makes you want to run, hide, cover up, and protect yourself. Given the fact that we all struggle with sin, we can assume that honesty and fear will accompany each other. We know we need to be honest, but we're afraid to be. Our fear of honesty isn't entirely unfounded. When we tell our spouses how they've hurt or offended us, or when we confess how we've hurt and offended them, we give them power. With that information, they have the power to attack us where we're vulnerable. If I say to my wife, it really hurt me when you said that I should lose some weight, I run the risk of hearing her say it again. And if she wants to hurt me, she can use that information as a weapon to call me fatty or make snide comments at the dinner table. I've exposed myself to that possibility. Obviously, if my spouse has a track record of abusing my honesty, when my fear, then my fear informs me that I should be cautious in practicing honesty. In such instances, the first order of business would be to talk about how previous honesty has been abused and how that is damaging to the marriage. Often we fear honesty because as descendants of Adam, we are born with a sense that if we're truly known, we will be rejected and punished. That's when we need to connect with the simple truth of the gospel. 
God has loved us by revealing himself as our gracious and loving Savior. Because of this, we can now love our spouses by revealing ourselves to them. Now, how would you, how would you summarize that practically? What does that mean? I, I have perhaps a legitimate fear of telling my spouse things that hurt me because that now makes me vulnerable. If they want to use that against me, they can. So what? What do I do with that? Well, and, and they can continue to use that as a weapon to reject me, to belittle me. So the only way you're going to get around that is this, is if you prioritize God's acceptance over all others. Prioritize God's acceptance of you over everyone else's. To put it another way, you will have to become comfortable with the fact that God has accepted me in Jesus. And if my spouse, as a sinner, chooses to use what he or she knows about me against me, then the fact that I am secure in my acceptance with God means that I'll go ahead and make myself vulnerable. I care more about what God thinks about me than I do about what anybody else does, including a sinful spouse who uses it as a weapon. The only way that you will overcome that fear of making yourself vulnerable is if you prioritize God's acceptance over the acceptance of all others. All right, page 30 in your notes. Constructive communication. That is, communication that builds up, constructs. Our attempts at communication often backfire. They often backfire. Because rather than revealing our own thoughts and feelings, we tell our spouses what we believe is wrong with them. So rather than dealing honestly with our own issues... We often engage in forms of dishonest communication to deflect from to deflect from ourselves. One of the most so here are some common forms of dishonesty. One of the common ways we experience our sinfulness is to somehow cover ourselves and hide. Dishonesty is one of the ways we trust in ourselves and hide rather than trusting in God and loving our spouses by being honest. Sometimes we outright lie, but much of the dishonesty that cripples communication is subtle. It's of a kind that you might not notice or even recognize as dishonesty. Three forms of dishonesty are the double bind, indirection, and misdirection. So here's a double bind. In a double bind, truth is joined to a contradictory message that makes it almost impossible for a spouse to know how to respond. No matter which message they respond to, they lose. A tone of voice, facial expression, or body language contradicts the words being spoken. All right, so here's an example. Men, your wife says, hey, does this outfit make me look fat? You are in a double bind. If you say yes, duck. If you say no, then she's going to think you're lying and just play. So you're in a, you're in a double bind. Now, to... to cement the fact that this is a common issue and a double bind that lots of men get into. We have a two-minute clip from our comedian Jeff Allen on that. 
She gave me, we're eating breakfast one morning, just sitting at the breakfast table, her and I, minding my own business. Said to her, you know, honey, could you pass me the butter knife? (laughs) Now I'm thinking something must be bothering Buttercup. So I said, something on your mind, Buttercup? She says, I'm fat. Every married man in this room knows you can't respond to that one, boy. A twitch of the eye could get you killed right here. You ever hear your wife say she's fat, you better become mannequin man. And she says, we're joining a health club. Did you hear what I said? I think I heard you say, you're fat and we're joining the health club. (laughs) That was the wrong answer. (laughs) Spoon. (laughs) Not joining a health club. We're lazy people. We've woken our children up to get the remote for the television. (laughs) And last month, she made a cellular phone call from our driveway to me in the house. Asking me to bring her her purse. What do you do with that call? Hello? Get my purse. What are you, in the attic? I'm in the driveway. I'm going to the health club and I need my ID. How lazy are you? Hey, go get your mother's purse and bring it to <laughs> So the double bind is, uh, is real. Now, my, uh, my wife and I had opportunity to go uh, this past week to a uh, retreat for pastors and wives. And we have only been to, this is the only one of these pastors' wives retreats we've ever been to. But we will try to make it a habit to, once a year if we can, go away for a weekend or something, to decide what are we going to do next year, what are our goals next year, what are things we need to do. And so that was one of the things on the agenda but uh, Kim brought up about midweek, hey, we need to talk about some of the stuff for next next year. And she wants to be delicate with one of the things she wants to address, which is what our comedian friend was talking about. Um, hey, we need to maybe start exercising. We need to start exercising. But she doesn't want to really say it directly. So she says, uh, hey, um, you're snoring again. Now, what that means is you've gained weight. I'm giving you the interpretation. You've gained weight. See, when you lost weight, you didn't snore as much. But now you're snoring again. Interpreted, you need to lose some weight. And so she says to me, you're snoring again. And I say to her, so you're saying I'm fat. And she goes, no, no, I'm not saying you're saying you're fat. But, you know, we, we want to be healthy. It's a code word. Unhealthy is another code word for fat. And so, no, but, you know, we want to be healthy. And the Lord gives us another 20 years of ministry. We want to be able to and, and, and all of that. And she said, so maybe, you know, we should join the, you know, the health club. This is all last week, you know, like we have in, in the past. Now, we live in Flat Rock. Flat Rock. Let me say the, the first word again. Flat. The word is flat. 
And Kim says, maybe we should, you know, join the health club. Like, the Fat Rock Community Center, she says. (laughs) Fat Rock? I go, you told me it's not because I'm fat, and you just said Fat Rock. (laughs) So Freud was right about all of this stuff that slips out of people's minds, right? So my wife and I are still happily married, even after the pastors and wives retreat. But back to page 30 and the double bind. And it's not just women who can put men in the double bind. Of course, men put women in the double bind. And one of the ways uh, men can do this is by pouting. Pouting. So you pout. This is nonverbal communication. She doesn't know if she should ask you if something's wrong because you haven't said anything's wrong. So she's in this, in this bind. You know, should I ask if something's wrong? Because if I ask, then he might, I've seen him do this before. He's going to attack by saying, what, did I say something was wrong? I didn't say anything. So should I ask? But then if I don't ask, he's moping around like he wants me to, inviting me to say something. So... Men, there are ways that we can do that, and you could add to that list. That's the double bind. Indirection occurs when, to soften the truth, casual hints are dropped. Potentially offensive messages are delivered in offhand comments. This technique gives the speaker wiggle room to deny that the offensive message was the one intended. Misdirection occurs when, instead of broaching a difficult topic, a counterfeit problem is, is brought up. Now, we've got three scenarios that involve some of all three of them. And so as we read these three scenarios, identify what form of dishonesty takes in, what form dishonesty takes in each, identify how each form of dishonesty employs selfishness and self-protection, and identify how the person being dishonest is refusing to trust Jesus. So here's scenario one. Sexual intimacy is very important to Barry, but he's reluctant to talk about it with his wife, Janine. Barry's been growing increasingly upset, feeling there hasn't been frequent or regular sexual intimacy. Janine has shown little interest, he thinks, and he feels rejected and separated from his wife. Yet discussing the issue openly and honestly with his wife seems too risky. As his frustration builds, he finds it more and more difficult to conceal it, but he would rather talk about anything else than let his wife know that he misses her. Instead, he vents his frustration and anger on anything and everything that seems to stand between him and his wife's affections. I don't understand why you have to hold our kids' hands the whole time they're doing their homework. They have to learn to do it on their own. You aren't going to go to college with them, are you? And I'm tired of the phone constantly interrupting our evenings. We need uninterrupted family time. No more phone calls after 7. Now, what's he, what's he doing there? That's misdirection. You see the misdirection? Instead of broaching a difficult topic, a counterfeit problem is, is manufactured. And then, top of page 31, Bernice wishes that her husband was more helpful around the house, but has found that asking for his help only irritates him, so she looks for opportunities to get the message across other ways. She knows that he really values having time with her in the evening, so she goes to bed an hour or two early for a few nights, making sure to explain to her husband that she's just too tired from all the housework to stay awake another minute. Hint, if you would just help me, I'd be available to spend spend time with you. Okay, So that is you know, an indirection. And then scenario three, one form of dishonesty is, is pouting. Pouting is just what you think it is. A look of sadness or irritation accompanied by 
silence and withdrawal. It works this way. My wife does something that angers me or hurts my feelings rather than speaking honestly. I become sullen and withdraw. If she asks me what's wrong, I say nothing, but my tone, facial expression, and body language all scream everything. That's putting her in the double bind. So there are all, those are just ex- a few examples of how dishonesty happens in our communication with each other. And when we do that, we are failing to express, to, to reflect God back to God. Now here are some other common ways to distort the truth. In contradiction to the verse we have in the middle of page 31, Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And let me just I'll just stop here for a moment. And we've got that verse, Ephesians 4.29. Just five verses before that, in Ephesians 4.24, it says this, that we were created to be like him in true righteousness and holiness. And now what you're reading here about how we use our mouths and how we communicate is one of the ways that we're like him. So I'm just reinforcing this idea that this is all about reflecting God back to God. We were made to be like him, and one of the ways we reflect him back to him is in the way we use our our mouths. Unwholesome speech in the context of this passage is anything that doesn't build others up is not according to their needs or does not benefit them. To obey this passage, it means we cannot simply say whatever we think or feel, but instead must choose our words according to the Bible's criteria. Is it helpful? Is it meeting needs? Is it beneficial? The wise person knows how powerful words can be and uses them carefully. Constructive honesty requires that we know the difference between what we think or feel and what we should share. Wisdom also means that we know our spouse well enough to decide what should be shared, how to share it, and when to share it, or when to just keep our thoughts to ourselves. This is necessary because there are some kinds of honest expression that are loaded with corrosive content. So here's what that is saying. Simply saying something that is, that is factually accurate does not fit the criteria of Ephesians 4.29. It may not be helpful to the other person because although it is factually accurate, it has got these sorts of distortions to it. Bottom of page 31, it's an exaggeration. When you speak in ways that use absolute terms such as only, always, and never. Imagine your spouse has said some harsh things to you. After a few minutes here, she cools off and tries to apologize. At this point, you say, you know, it would help me if you weren't critical all the time. You never say anything nice to me. How would your spouse respond? By becoming defensive. Is your spouse now still ready to apologize? Probably not. You were right to say how hurtful the angry criticism was, but the truth was distorted by these exaggerations. Consider how different it would have been if you said, you know, it really hurts me when you lose your temper like that. And sometimes I feel like you are disappointed with me more than you are happy with me. It might have deepened your spouse's understanding of what happened, which would have deepened his or her apology rather than negating it. So there's exaggeration. And whenever you use always, never, all the time, whenever you do that, you're exaggerating. If there was even one time, that is an exception to the standard that you set. 
If you say you do this all of the time and there's one time when they didn't do that, then what you just said is not accurate, correct? So exaggeration. Here's another one, top of page 22, using trait names. That is reducing the other person's identity to his or her sinful behavior. Sometimes in a heated argument, spouses say things that are especially destructive. Instead of saying, I feel like you weren't being honest with me, they say, you're a liar. Instead of saying, you really hurt me when you said, they say, you're a jerk. Trait names reduce a spouse's identity to his or her sinful behavior. Like exaggeration, using trait names communicates you're no more or no better than what you've just done. Now that ought to convict us, friends. For any of us to put someone in a category that says you are no better than what you just did or you just said. You said this, therefore I am labeling you. This is a trait of yours. You're a liar. To give them an inaccurate uh, description because of something that they did. And then compare saying something like that to Ephesians 4.29. No unwholesome talk, but rather only what is helpful and beneficial to those who hear. And then here's a third way of distorting truth. Mind reading. Assuming the worst is what's motivating the individual. Bill and Mary had a real blowout, said some very ugly things. Sometime later, Bill came home with a dozen roses, planted a passionate kiss on Mary, and announced that he had arranged for a babysitter and they were going to Mary's favorite restaurant. Mary angrily pushed Bill away and said, don't think I don't know what you're up to. You want me to just forget all the mean things you said by sweeping me off my feet, buying me dinner, and even expecting me to have sex with you tonight. Well, you can just forget it. Mary acts as if she can read Bill's mind, as if she not only knows what Bill is doing, but why he is doing it. Is she right? It's true that surprises and gifts have become Bill's regular response to fights and that the gifts have the effect of burying the conflict rather than resolving it. But does that mean he's being manipulative? Does that mean he's just after sex? Maybe. But it could also be that Bill simply doesn't know of any other way to recover. Maybe he doesn't know how to resolve the problem. He's afraid to engage in it again. The point is, the point is we don't know. And friends, this kind of thing happens all the time time okay now i exaggerate it but it happens in all sorts of situations marital situations church situations people assume they know why you did or failed to do a particular thing and what does love require when we don't know love requires that you assume not the worst but the best we have, a, we have a requirement when, in loving each other to put the most charitable interpretation on the actions of others. The most loving interpretation on the actions of others. If I don't know why they did it, then I look for a charitable way to interpret why they did it. But very often, our first resort is to assume the worst. And then shaming. At one point during a couple's counseling session, the wife became so angry and desperate for the counselor to side with her against her husband, she blurted out, you don't understand how sick he is. Did he tell you what he did in college? Her husband jerked his head around and stared wide-eyed at her. Before she could say another word, the counselor held up his hand and said, stop, don't say another word. 
The counselor feared, probably with good reason, that the next thing out of her mouth could have been so shameful for the husband that the counseling and perhaps the marriage would be over. Her husband would have been humiliated and likely enraged by whatever she was going to share. One of the biggest challenges to honesty is shame. Our sense that there are things about us that make us unacceptable and unlovable, things that we feel we must hide. Marriage gives us an opportunity both to give and to receive the same kind of love that God gives us, a love that communicates that we can be known and loved. It's especially egregious then when in a moment of anger a spouse takes something you shared in a moment of intimacy and safety and uses it as a weapon against you. When you shame your spouse in this way, you're not only humiliating your spouse and breaking trust, you're actively attacking the work of the gospel in his or her life. Where God says you're forgiven, you're saying you'll always be guilty. Where the gospel says you're now clean, you're saying you're still filthy. When you shame your spouse, you aren't just defending your spouse, but God himself. All of these ways of distorting the truth are ways of sinfully protecting ourselves. We take the focus off of ourselves by attacking the identity of our spouses, reducing them to the behavior that hurt or offended us. And they never work because they're manipulative. By using our spouses to defend ourselves, we're treating them like objects that exist for us rather than honoring them in love. Ultimately, manipulation only makes things worse. So one last scenario, and then think about the distortions of truth that are being used. Stephanie, we're all in the car. We've been waiting for you for 10 minutes, and now we're late. Can you please hurry up? I thought you said we needed to be there by 5. It's only 4.30. We have plenty of time. You always do this and make everyone late. Okay, always. You know I hate being late, but all you care about is yourself. Just pick out something to wear and wear it. Now, notice, you know I hate being late, but all you care about is yourself. So I've just given you a trait name. You're selfish. Scott, I would have been down already if you had gotten the kids ready like I asked you to. But like always... All right, there you go, always. You're probably watching TV. Notice the assuming the worst. If we're late, it'll be because of you. Don't blame me. Your lazy trait name. (laughs) Show some patience for once. He's never shown patience one time in his entire life, so for once. I will not be patient. Do you remember what happened last time you made us late and whose fault was that? And this is the shaming piece of it. All right, now, I have encouraged you to do the homework on your own and if your spouse is willing with your your spouse. This particular series is one that depends very heavily upon you doing the homework. So if you've not been doing that, I encourage you to go back and do that. And I want to end our time today with one of the uh, testimonies that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago to you. I said that uh, we would have a couple of testimonies from folks who have learned from God's word, how to interact with their spouse, and it's made a world of difference for them. Now, this particular testimony is going to be read by me. I'm going to read it, and it's going to be anonymous. And the reason it's anonymous is because, uh, as you'll hear when I read it, it's about uh, someone who has a spouse who is not a believer. So we don't want to identify that spouse. We don't want to shame them in any way but to edify you by seeing that this is how God works if you follow his, his principles. My wife, uh, our marriage has its ups and downs. Some are caused by the fact that I'm a Christian and 
my wife is not. And others are things that occur in any marriage. I won't go into any detail about our problems because what makes our marriage better and minimizes our problems doesn't depend on what the particular problems are. But in general, I would say my having a Christian worldview and different belief of the purpose of life are two of the biggest issues that we have. During my time at CBC, I've tried to take advantage of the educational opportunities here. And I've learned so much, which has been so very helpful to me with my marriage and with life in general. Even classes which are not specifically designated as marriage classes have taught me things which help my marriage, help make my marriage better. I'm going to read on, but let me just stop there. What that person just said is golden. And everybody here should follow that. In the classes that we offer you where you learn about God and learn about yourself, those truths are applicable to everything. And that's what this person has been wise enough to see. Even classes that are not marriage classes have helped in my marriage. For instance, I learned I was created to reflect God's image or his his attributes back to him. Each day I try to do this to the best of my ability. I often fail, but each day is a new chance to recommit myself to God's purpose for me. This improves my relationship with God, and the better my relationship with God is, the better my marriage. For example, one of God's attributes is love. My relationship with God is better if I also display this attribute. The scriptures teach me the way to show Christian love for another is to do what is best for that person, even if it's not best for me. So each morning, I resolve to do that for my wife. I try to keep that at the forefront of my thoughts, and believe me when I say it makes a world of difference in my marriage. I also resolve not to try and get her to change. And I'm not just talking about getting her to be a believer. I took notice when Pastor Ken talked about the marriage counseling he's done and how in almost every instance the husband and wife go into it with the belief that if their spouse makes a few changes, everything will be fine. I resolve not to do this, but to accept my wife as she is. Of course, the things I've mentioned could and should be practiced by all Christians, not just those of us who have non-believing spouses. But I believe those of us with non-believing spouses should be especially diligent in our attempts to model the Christian life. Someone very near and dear to us is going to benefit, and we may be the tool God uses to bring our spouse to the Lord. And the Bible does not exempt us from acting as a Christian spouse just because our spouse is not. One of the educational opportunities which really helped me and is specific to men is men's fraternity. I learned there how a real, read, Christian man acts. I was so moved by what I was taught, I sat down and wrote a letter of apology to my ex-wife for the way I treated her during our marriage, and I accepted for the first time the responsibility for its failure. And then I apologized to my current wife and pledged to be a better husband. So if any of you men out there have not gone through men's fraternity, I urge you to do so. Finally, there are two other things I've learned, which not only help me in my marriage, but with life in general. Whatever stage of life I am in and whatever bad or good things are happening to me, I am where God wants me to be. And two, I should leave everything to God because everything is under his control. Both of these help me cope when things aren't going well. I've learned the best thing for me to do is strive to live the life God has commanded me to live and to not worry about anything else. What a beautiful testimony of someone growing in the Lord, taking the truth about God and applying that to every area, including his his marriage. 
I encourage you to seek to do the same thing in all the spheres of relationship God has called you to, and especially in your marriage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for another Lord's Day to be with your people, to honor you by praising you, learning of you from your word. Lord, we thank you for this hour. The opportunity to focus upon this most important of human relationships when you bring a man and a woman together to serve you by helping each other become like you. Lord, help us to see that that's the purpose for marriage. But it begins with us and and always that I need to be like you and we need to individually be like you and striving to reflect you back to you. And so as our brother has shared in his testimonies, he has learned to do that. It has, it, has, it has caused him to, to move from taking into his hands things that only you can do. Only you can change the heart of an individual. And so, Lord, help us to fulfill our responsibility to, to reflect your image to you and to others. And then having done so, to happily and, and in a contented way leave the results to you. Lord, I pray that this week we will begin to put this into practice, that we will focus upon the things we say and the attitudes we display in our relationships rather than focusing first on those of our spouse. And Lord, help us to then leave to you the changes that need to be made in others. Use us as tools in that process, but the results belong to you. Go with us this week, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.